somehow when we can talk about these fears and uncertainties and get those scary things on the table instead of holding them privately, I think it's a very healthy thing for a team to do because we don't know where the future is going. But scenarios not only help us maybe get ready, like the COVID pandemic was knowable. Some organizations Mm -hmm. didn't know about it and were prepared. When we can get those fears on the table and do a little bit of preparation, that helps. But even just the mindset shift helps a team really anticipate the future more accurately, you know, without putting your head in the sand. Welcome to Empowered Leadership. We share candid conversations with successful leaders about what it takes to cultivate the leadership, life, and legacy you desire, and to do it with confidence, ease, and joy. I'm your host, Alexandra Reese. And today I'm joined by Maggie Kolkana, founder and partner of Third Thought Consulting, where she helps leaders manage the future. Maggie has over 25 years of experience in leadership development and has worked with senior leaders at notable firms like Nike, Intel, and McKinsey. She's also a published author, having just released Today for Tomorrow, a field guide for scenario planning. One thing I particularly appreciate about Maggie is her focus on practical application. A lot of futurists have their head in the cloud, so to speak, and weave great stories and get people inspired, but they're not always great at bringing the future into today and helping leaders figure out how to manage for it. That is something Maggie does exceptionally well, and I'm excited for you to hear some of her practical advice to help you become a better leader who can manage and optimize the future in your own life. Without further ado, let's dive in. Thank you so much for joining us on Empowered Leadership today, Maggie. How are you doing? Doing well. Just got back from a trip to the Oregon coast, so I'm all relaxed. Yeah. Oh, lovely. What beach were you staying at? We were at Lincoln City, and we were right by the casino, so we had some gambling and some hiking and some cooking and six women. It was fantastic. That sounds really lovely. Nice. Yeah. Welcome home. Thanks. <laughs> well, as the name of this show is Empowered Leadership, I always like to start with the question, what does empowered leadership mean to you? So the word empowered is interesting. It always makes me think of the old TV show, Dallas, where, where Jock Ewing said to his son, power isn't something that's given to you, son. Power is something you take. Um, <laughs> great. So, that was a great well, invitation. You know, <laughs> Power is such a, such a word, right? So I think that it's when people do feel empowered and some things that I like about the word that I think we do need to take some of our own power, but we also need to understand where the barriers are. Like what are the guardrails? Mm -hmm. Because depending on your industry, you know, you might be in a job where you could be a complete a disaster if you spoke to a certain client segment in a certain way, or you failed to do something to make sure the airplanes were safe. So mm-hmm. there are some things that are very high risk. And so I think people feel more empowered when they know where their guardrails are. And I love the analogy. Years ago, I was at Grand Canyon. And if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you know, there are places where there are fences. 
Mm-hmm. And where the fences are, people got their leg over and they've got their cameras and they're like leaning way, way over. Like, it's <laughs> like, wow, glad that fence is there. But if you go to another part where there's no fence, you're kind of back. And because it's almost like the canyon is going to pull you down. Yeah. Like right here. And you don't take as much risk. So I think when the guardrails are really explicit and people know what they're what their leeway is, then they feel a lot more empowered and also safe. Yeah. I feel like the guardrails actually make people feel like they can tiptoe up to the edge. Yeah. Which maybe at the Grand Canyon, you don't want if you're in a crowd of people, but in an organization, you really want people to feel like they can push the boundary with safety. Yes. Yes. And you see people who, I mean, it happens to all of us. We get some feedback or a reaction and we go, Oh, that hurt. I won't do that again. And yeah. so, you know, it's disempowering when that happens and you just kind of retreat and operate like right within the tightest rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you say the word guardrails, Give us some examples. What are some of the types of guardrails and maybe a few examples of guardrails that you've seen be really effective in organizations? The one that I see the most often is our political guardrails. Make sure you run that email by me before you send it to the vice president. Just because if we're not familiar with the political dynamics in an organization, it is really easy to make a mistake. And those can be quite damaging, I think, within an organization, depending on the leaders. And I think there are opportunities all along the way when we make mistakes about cultural norms. Years ago, when I joined Intel, I was working in Intel Labs, and I had come out of government where we did a lot of BCCing. Mm -hmm. And I did a BCC at (laughs) Intel. And they said, I mean, right away, I heard back from my client and he said, we don't do that here. You know, we just don't do it. Don't BCC ever. And I just thought, great. Thank you. Now I know that guardrail exists. I never do it again. So I think political ones are very important. But I think also, you know, knowing what you have to take seriously, knowing what reports you can, you know, you don't have to file the TPS report because nobody reads it. Any rails around how we interact with our consumers. Mm-hmm. I was working with an organization one time that is quite polished with their consumers and we were doing an innovation project and they had a really rough prototype that they wanted to share with these external patients. And one or two of the members of the team said, absolutely not. That's not how we do it here. This is too rough. It's too raw. Let's not use it. And so the team had an interesting process trying to work that out. They ultimately showed it and it ended up being extremely helpful. You know, it was just an early prototype. It was a design Mm -hmm. thinking effort. And so that worked really well. So I think, I think it's important to test periodically those guardrails, but again, ensuring that you have a team or a organization that will also make things safer for you in the spirit of learning. Yeah. And to put a finer point on the types of guardrails, what I'm hearing is it's really important to have guardrails that clearly dictate what's the culture we have here. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what are the boundaries within which we're all agreeing to show up yeah. and work together? Yeah. You know, one type at the highest level is your values. 
yeah. that provide that mm-hmm. really broad umbrella under which we define how we work together. Yeah. But then there's a lot of those nuances around how do we communicate? What are the norms by which we collaborate? What does an MVP look like? Yeah. And as you were sharing one of your examples, I just had this visceral memory back to a meeting a number of years ago where I didn't know it until six months later during my performance review, but I'd said something in a meeting. I challenged a managing director and I'd questioned an assumption they'd made about the market because mm-hmm. I thought it was a meeting where we were brainstorming our strategy. <laughs> and it was appropriate for us to be surfacing and challenging assumptions. That was not (laughs) the shared expectations of everyone in the room. And I violated that unspoken cultural norm that the leader had. And it totally bit me in the rear six months later at a performance review. And it just goes to show the importance of really being clear about what are those norms that we have. You might have done that a hundred times in the following six months. Like surely someone could have taken you aside and said, actually, that's not how we do this here. And that gets to the importance of safety. (laughs) What do you do when people violate norms, right? Because violation doesn't mean you have bad intent. It just means to your point, your example around BCCing is great. My example around challenging in a meeting is another one. It's not that we did something wrong. It's that, or we had bad intent. We just violated a norm within the group. Yeah. And then you've got to have a way to repair it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I think empowering is not only telling you what your job is, but it's also how, and it's Mm -hmm. also why. If we don't have all those things, it's just hard to be really effective. Yeah, absolutely. So creating guardrails and then creating safety and some norms around how you do repair. So when you step outside, you're able to come back into the fold without it being destructive experience that leads you to always hang back in your zone of safety and comfort. Well, and it kind of raises the point. If you had known the why, you thought the why was let's all ideate here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and nope, that wasn't why we were in this meeting. It was for something else, apparently. <laughs> That's something that, you know, in a world where so many people are talking about overwhelm, calendar overwhelm, schedule overwhelm, mm-hmm. to-do list overwhelm, taking that extra step of before you make the request before you send out the calendar invite, before you create a new task, Mm -hmm. getting that clarity around what's the why Mm -hmm. (laughs) behind it. Yeah. What do we need to accomplish? Who needs to be involved to get there Mm -hmm. is so valuable. It's that little time up front that I've found can obviate a lot of those uncomfortable situations and sometimes even obviate whole bodies of work down the road. Yeah. At this point in our career, we're working with more senior leaders, but I also have like such excitement about the younger leaders that are coming up. You know, if we talk about empowered leadership, leadership can come from anywhere. It doesn't have Mm -hmm. to be the manager to empower. So I've seen some amazing leaders who work behind the scenes, who engage and enthuse people. So I think that there's definitely a trend toward 
decentralizing leadership. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's as common in our larger organizations. And I'll never forget early when I started in corporate work, I was taking a class and this guy started talking about the org chart and he turned it sideways and just illustrated that yeah, this is basically a military model. The generals at the back and then the officers and then, you know, at the very front, the most expendable new people, you know, and that's really like that whole org chart just feels like an old idea. There's a group that I love. Corporate Rebels is an organization out of the Netherlands and they are profiling companies and writing about new organization models, some of which are actually quite old models from more agrarian and cooperative societies. So Mm -hmm. this notion of as an individual, I am not competitive. We don't have to compete and I'm self-reliant. And as an organization, we all respect and help one another. Corporate Rebels gives us an example of an organization called Burtzorg. And it's neighborhood healthcare. And it started this guy and another person and then another person. They left healthcare as it was because it was getting so bureaucratic and it wasn't serving the clients and the patients the way they thought it ought to be serving them. And they started this organization where there are local teams, they're autonomous. The purpose and the vision of the organization are crystal clear to every single person. And it's been really successful. It's better for the patients. It's mostly happening in the EU. It's just a beautiful model. And I think that everybody's trying hard. Everyone wants to do their best. But sometimes the systems we're in make it so hard for us to do that. We're confined and just kind of hamstrung. It takes either, I think, a big shock to the system. Mm Mm-hmm. Or Mm -hmm. similar to the way COVID shocked our system around where we work. Yes. And or it takes a lot of space and capacity to step up Mm -hmm. from what you're doing Mm -hmm. and be reflective. Yeah. And have the cognitive and emotional capacity to explore, as you do a scenario planning, explore what could be possible without the Mm -hmm. pressure of feeling like, I've got to now drill down into what's the change we're making today. I think one major barrier, I'd be curious to hear what others Mm -hmm. you've seen crop up to those changes in organizational structures. But one big barrier I've seen is people just don't take the time and don't give themselves the space to really step up and say what's possible. And they don't have maybe the culture in the organization where those most senior leaders feel comfortable bringing in the voices and the insights from maybe more junior or individual contributor or frontline staff within the organization to get Mm -hmm. their perspectives on how -hmm. could we better leverage your talents? How could we better position you in the organization to be more effective? Yeah. And unless you have diversity of opinion and thought, you're probably not going to get a new novel way of thinking about things. No, no. And our IQs don't go up the higher we go up the org chart. You know, <laughs> I think we often <laughs> underestimate the value of our new people. They say you have about six months before you come org blind or job blind. Mm-hmm. Because when you first come in, you go, well, that's an interesting way to do that <laughs> where I came from. And nobody wants to hear that <laughs> where I came from. We did this, 
But when you are new to something, you have such a fresh perspective, you know, listening from all over the organization. And the, and the research is so clear, like a diverse team in age, experience, gender, racial identity. It's just like all of those things contribute to a much richer pool. So it made me sad recently, Deloitte, because I look a lot at the future and how leaders can help organizations get ready, get better ready for the future that's right around the corner. Deloitte does a a lot of foresight work. Mm -hmm. And they were just looking at how, you know, how are the different generations affecting the workplace? And they have a whole list of, I mean, it's interesting research. And they feel like they have Gen X and millennials feel like they have over 50% of them feel like they have something and can make a contribution to the market. But when it came to sustainability and social impact, only 15% felt like they had some ability to impact that for their organization in their own organization, which was really sad to me because they're the ones going to be inheriting the future and running the future organization. And I know I just think we need to do a better job of engaging them. And some organizations, like I know Nike had, I don't remember what they call it, but they had a panel of young people that they regularly like brought in on certain strategic efforts because they wanted to hear those youthful points of view. It reminds me, I think one of the most successful CEOs that I've spent a lot of time researching and studying is the founder, Stephen Schwarzman of the big BlackRock group. And he talks about in his memoir, one of the biggest mistakes they ever made. And he said, we've never made a mistake like this again, was we went and made an investment that just totally failed. When we did the postmortem to figure out why, it was because the leaders had made a decision as a group around the table. It was a consensus decision like we always do. But when one leader had challenged another, instead of going to the source, which was the individual contributor and the analyst who had the market insight, we let those leaders battle it out. Mm. And it turned into a game of politics and influence. Mm. Who had more influence? Who had more sway? Mm -hmm. Not what did the data say? Mm -hmm. And he was like, I learned from that experience. Never, if you're in doubt about the path forward, make a decision without going to the source of the information, which is almost always going to be an individual contributor within your organization. Yeah. 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 Let's say, who knows about this? Let's double check. Let's get some, oh, I know, data, facts. (laughs) Well, before we shift in, I want to talk about scenario planning, but before we leave the discussion of power distribution, I'd love to hear What models have you seen work well in terms of alternative ways to structure organizations and distribute power? Because I think that is a topic that a lot of my clients and a lot of people in my community I connect with are working through today. Yeah, I don't have an easy answer to that. I think that there is always a need to somehow move big decisions up big and expensive decisions up. So I think that there is a place for some kind of centralized power in a large organization. But as we move toward decentralized, like some of those decisions, I think, are being moved out. People who have, you know, a regional responsibility or a market segment responsibility 
are more empowered than they used to be to be able to make decisions. I also think that it's important that we have tools for teams to operate as a flatter team. When no one's in charge, I remember way back when we did self-managed teams. I remember when I was in grad school, it was like self-managed teams and they come and they go, but it doesn't work very well unless that team gets a little bit of support learning how to work that way. I do think younger people have had a longer history of working in teams, like through their education and so on. And I think they're much better at teaming than older folks who didn't get that team experience in schools. Not necessarily a dedicated facilitator, but learning how to facilitate yourselves and observe yourselves. That's not hard to do. It takes practice because it's not what we're used to. But the more that we can do that for ourselves, the more effective we'll be at as a team. And I've seen teams operate that way. And it's a beautiful thing. There's just so much trust and like such high levels of empowerment that they get a lot done. Wherever a team is, they probably have enough knowledge and ability to do what they need to do without someone watching over them. I mean, thank goodness we've learned that people can work effectively from home or from wherever they are. You know, how long did that take? I would have um, thought, although the return to work cascade of return to work announcements I'm seeing in the Wall Street Journal are surprising in that vein. <laughs> That's a whole other topic. <laughs> and when is our four day work week coming? <laughs> I do wonder on the org structure piece, and I'd be curious to hear if how this resonates with you. I do wonder if the rapid pace of change in our world, which shows no signs of slowing yeah. down, really does mean the end of the highly matrixed organization. Because I shifted from being a do-it-for-you strategist to mm-hmm. a develop-you coach, because yeah. the world is changing so quickly. Yeah. Great leaders can't afford to pick up the phone and call their strategic advisor every time the world changes and they need to make a decision. They've got to have that ability within themselves. And I carry that into an organizational context and say, if you've got a matrix, that means every time something changes and you need to make a strategic decision, you've got to call a meeting with Mm -hmm. two or three other leaders. You're moving too slow. Yeah. Yeah, I am very curious to see how organizations are evolving because, you know, depending on the industry, I think it is so complex Mm -hmm. that the models, like, they sort of start to break apart. So that's why I'm really interested in, like, the Burtzorg, how they took something as complex as healthcare and have completely redistributed decision making. and. I think that people are capable. We're so adaptable. We are so adaptable. And I've seen the evolution of what's on a leader's plate just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And yet people are still doing it. You know, and the analogy I use is look at the Olympic skating competitions from, you know, the twenties and thirties or dancers. And then you look at them now. Like the it's a whole different sport feet of <laughs> yeah. the skill levels and no one could ever run a four minute mile. Well, these barriers keep changing and what's possible when people are engaged, 
it's just exciting. I'm very excited about the newer leaders coming up. I mean, they've had a completely different growing up experience. They're so much more skilled at navigating all the personality and people dynamics. It's very exciting. And their educations have been just that more evolved from what what I did 20, 30 years ago in my OD program. You know, Mm. it's exciting to me how we're evolving. That said, I think that the leadership role as there is a trend toward decentralization, I think the job of the leader will be so much more important in being a support to the people he or she works with. It's going to be so important to be the keeper of the culture and the humanity of an organization because AI can't do that, you know? Yeah. Maybe it can. (laughs) One-on-one, maybe. (laughs) That is that is yeah. a big question. Yeah. It's like when will AI have enough EQ to start replacing managers? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. a question I've seen. An interesting question. Seen posed, and it's one I've started yeah. to explore in my own work as a coach. Yeah. Is like, where yeah. does AI play a role? It's- yeah, yeah. I think um, it's exciting, and I, you know, I take the warnings for sure to heart, and how we need to ensure that it benefits everyone. Not just certain segments, but it's exciting. I mean, I, I just love technology. I think it's very exciting the possibilities that as far as like scalability around education and so many areas where it's going to be very helpful for humanity. Yeah. And I think that's a really great opportunity to pivot into the scenario work you do. I'm really curious. What are you talking to clients about? How is technology coming to play in scenario planning? Yeah. Well, I like writing about it. I like researching it. I think that when you can create a story about the future that is based on today's trends, but they're extended, I think that they have a ring of truth, but also a little bit of, oh, I never thought about that. You know, so putting that not necessarily science fiction spin, but it could be good. It could be bad. This is an uncertainty, which is the heart of why we do that work. Why we do scenario planning is because of these uncertainties. And so there are winners and losers in all the scenarios, but it just depends like what will happen. So surfacing those uncertainties, I had an interesting conversation with somebody over the weekend that you know, organizations typically are not very long-term focused, you know, no, at least that's not the opposite. their investments, <laughs> right? It's quarterly focus and, you know, not to criticize leaders for it. There are a lot of pressures on them to do that. But I think scenarios help organizations understand and explore the future and to say, what can we do today to safeguard ourselves should this happen? And keeping track of what those uncertainties will be what they are on right now, because we can't predict, no one can predict the future. So tracking those uncertainties and exploring what might happen is fascinating. And, you know, I wouldn't expect leaders to create those for themselves every time, but I think that there are a lot of interesting scenario sets online and resources online, and it can highlight for leaders what some of the future risks or opportunities might be for them. Yeah. And I think Something you alluded to there 
brings up a really interesting question that I have about scenario planning. You know, there are a lot of good sets of insights around future scenarios online, specifically around things like technology, climate change, the economy, geopolitics. And I'm curious, when you work with leaders who want to get more comfortable with the future, want to embrace uncertainty as something that can help them, not hold them back, where do you spend time? Is it on gathering information, making sense of what's already out there, figuring out what are the implications for us as an organization? Like, what's the share of effort and where does it go? Yeah. Honestly, there are a few use cases. We have taught entire planning functions how to execute, you know, create design and complete scenario work in order to roll that up and offer these (laughs) insights to senior leaders. We've done it through leadership development workshops where we use a pre-built set of scenarios around talent or the future of work. Mm-hmm. As everybody manages talent and they're all going to be working in the future. So those are very relatable. So it just kind of depends on what the setting is. I think every board of every organization ought to be convening scenarios for their organization and looking at the long-term implications of current movements and current uncertainties. And I think that Like at some level, we each know a little bit something about what might happen. Like everybody knows now about the risks of climate change. If you haven't experienced it firsthand, you've seen it on the news. So the climate crisis, it's real. And we're seeing Mm -hmm. the impacts. No matter where you are, we're seeing the impacts. Somehow when we can talk about these fears and uncertainties and get those scary things on the table instead of holding them privately, I think it's a very healthy thing for a team to do because we don't know where the future is going, but scenarios not only help us maybe get ready, like the COVID pandemic was knowable. Some organizations Mm -hmm. didn't know about it and were prepared. When we can get those fears on the table and do a little bit of preparation, that helps. But even just the mindset shift helps a team really anticipate the future more accurately, you know, without putting your head in the sand. Well, and I think it also helps a team get comfortable with pivoting. Mm -hmm. And it also Mm -hmm. gets a team comfortable with intellectual debate. Yeah. And it gets a team comfortable, hopefully, with productive conflict. Yeah. Because you're starting to question, challenge, ask what if, debate assumptions about what could be, what is. Yeah. And when you can do that well, bringing it back to our earlier conversation about what do organizations need to be effective, that really is part and parcel of the work leaders should be doing Mm -hmm. or could be doing to really build much higher performing teams. So it's almost like what I'm hearing you say, and I fullheartedly agree based on my experience (laughs) doing this work, is scenario planning and futurism is as important for building a better team culture as it is for informing strategy. Yeah. So it's like a gift with purchase. (laughs) Scenario work has been around for a long time, foresight Mm -hmm. work, whatever you want to call it. It's been around for a long time, but it's been done by experts Mm -hmm. in small 
organizations. And a few years ago, five, six years ago, we were coaching leaders and we used McKinsey's three horizon model. There's today where you're stretching your margins and really making the organization hum. There's horizon two where you're taking new ideas and testing them and de-risking them and doing soft launches with them. And then there's horizon three, which is the long-term seeding ideas, looking for opportunities, looking for threats, anything that is almost theoretical, Mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out what the future might hold. And typically that's been done by R&D, you know, new product discovery or marketing, maybe they might be out there as well. We kept saying, you know, leaders ought to be doing this for their function as well. Now, when you're able to work across the horizons, you will be a more effective leader and help your organization grow effectively. And everybody go, yes, absolutely, Maggie. That is so true. So we'd say, how much time are you spending in Horizon 3? And maybe 10%. Yeah. And the problem was there wasn't, they didn't know what to do. It's like, just think big thoughts. And mm-hmm. so I said, we need to start teaching leaders about scenario work. And I had always had like stories of the future. I use it for change work sometimes. So I, we started using it. And oh, I never forget, there was one man who had gotten really strong feedback in his 360 that he was a micromanager because he was like really watching what the team was doing and making sure it just like all over his team. And afterward, after he'd gone through the scenario work, uh, he said, oh, no, Mackie, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> I've got to be in the future. I've got to be looking ahead for the organization. So yes. he finally had some kind of framework, something to actually do. I think any team can make a discipline of our game, really, of trend watching. It's exciting. I mean, it's really interesting to look for what's on the horizon. And, and it, it can be way. fun. Yeah. Right. The way that you talked about it, it's about people getting curious Mm -hmm. and doing a little research and thinking about what could be and then bringing that forward to their team. Mm -hmm. And for people who are listening, who are passionate about this, I did an earlier episode with Craig Trames, who is the former senior director of innovation at Adidas. And one thing we talked about is if you look forward, what does innovation look like in the most successful companies? And he said, just what you said, it's, you don't have a single team that owns innovation. You should still have an innovation team who's dedicated to that. But part of what they should be doing is making sure that innovation is becoming part of the culture of the whole organization. And that looks like at the start, often bringing forward scenarios interesting studies and research that propel the organization to think, what if, Mm -hmm. and start to challenge Mm -hmm. what could be, yeah, given those potential futures. So I think that's such a great place to start for people wondering, okay, I can carve out the time, but what do I do with it? Yeah. And it's not just like product innovation. People leaders can be looking ahead toward what are the emerging organization models and value propositions for employees wherever you are. I mean, obviously supply chain is really like all over it because Mm -hmm. they were so disrupted during the pandemic. So yeah, getting out ahead is really helpful. And there are a lot, not a lot, a few really interesting papers coming out now about the link with foresight work and innovation. And it's not just in product development or customer service or something. Yeah. 
Would you mind sharing a few of those links so we can put them in the show notes? I would love to. I would be happy to do that. Be able to share that research with people. Dig through my shelves, my arcane data collection. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody just asked me, they go, so do you start a new pestle worksheet every time or do you track trends? I said, well, I track a lot. I wouldn't say that I have solved how to keep them organized. (laughs) I'll be like, where is that? I, it's kind of addictive. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. There's a lot of uncertainty there. And one argument I've heard from some leaders I've talked with about doing scenario planning is, you know, there's so many uncertainties. If we start trying to get our arms around them, we're just going to get mired down in them. Mm. And I'll share one thing I often share. I'd love to hear what your advice is when you've heard that objection to scenario planning. What I always share is a story. I did scenario planning with a large school district back in 2015. Mm. And we never had a pandemic as one of our drivers of change that became an input into our scenarios. Mm -hmm. But what we had done was we brainstormed all these drivers of change and figured out which ones might shape the context in which we operate in dramatically different ways Mm -hmm. and would be representative of a number of other different drivers of change. Yeah. So although we never had a pandemic, what we had picked as a driver of change was a dramatic cut in property taxes, which were their primary funding mechanism. Mm -hmm. And then we explored what would it look like if we had to put people into remote learning environments because we could no longer afford to maintain facilities? Wow. And that was intentional because we thought, okay, that could be something you'd have to grapple with under a number of different drivers of change. And so I always like to tell that story as a way of illustrating it's not about having a magic eight ball yeah. and picking the exact future. It's yeah. about understanding, yeah. are there some different drivers we can pick out yeah. that are going to stretch us to really think in four, four-ish pretty extreme different directions yeah. about how we might need to pivot our future? Yeah. Well, very prescient of you and that school organization because worked out well. Uh, they pivoted yeah. quite quickly. I bet with a lot less pain. <laughs> yeah. They were had mentally rehearsed it already. Yes. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. I think that, I mean, in reality, none of the scenarios as we've written them will come true mm-hmm. as we've written them. There'll be parts and then a, a couple of things that, wow. We completely miss this. But the other thing that I wanted to say was that organizations can do pieces of it. They don't have to do the whole soup to nuts and do a complete set of scenarios. And you don't have to do them all the time. Yeah. You can refresh them. My hope is that more and more organizations will make this just kind of a standard part of how they do strategy setting because Scenario planning, it doesn't replace strategy. It informs it. And even for smaller businesses, because during the pandemic, small and medium businesses were hit much harder and they didn't have the cash reserves or consulting team. And it was very hard on small businesses. So even if someone is in a smaller organization, even if they just did trend watching for fun once Mm -hmm. a month, you get together and share the latest of what you found. And you can set all kinds of like mechanisms in your software to say, I'm curious about trends in blank and it will be offered up to you, which is very exciting. 
And AI probably is going to make, AI can look back. It's not as good at looking forward, but it can really probably identify some of that for you too. Yeah. You use the word fun. And I've said this in a couple of shows, but I'll say it again because I think it's that important. In a world where we're all tapped on our bandwidth, Mm-hmm. asking the question of yourself and your team, what's the most fun way we could do this mm. is so important. Yeah. And what I love about your book, which I'll link people to in the show notes is it brings a lot of fun into it. Even the way it's presented, it's fun to look at. It's fun to page through the activities are engaging. It really does bring it to life in a way that so much of the futurism work is very dense and heavy. Mm -hmm. That can be helpful Mm -hmm. to inform this work, but this Mm -hmm. in itself can make it kind of light. And I think it makes it easy for people to really dip their toe in and have fun with it without feeling like they have to like fully commit academic. Thank you. (laughs) Because that was my goal. I mean, it's a workbook. It's the size of a workbook. It's visual. It's got color. (laughs) It's very lighthearted. I tried to use my coachy voice, you know, to just say, you can do this right on. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, as we come to the close of our conversation, one question I always like to ask is, what's one piece of conventional leadership wisdom you think is outdated? The thing that comes up for me is we often say lead with your strengths. And the leaders I work with, they just cannot do that alone. It's like, you may have some strengths and that's good. That's where you feel comfortable. It can also create a bias for you. Mm -hmm. It can create blinders and it can also kind of, you can describe yourself as, well, I'm such a, I'm such a people person. I'm, I'm a quant guy, you know, and you better be learning all the time as a leader. (laughs) There is no den. You better be the best leaders I know especially worked into those uncomfortable places. They were not natural people leaders and they became really good people leaders through continuous work. So know what your strengths are, know that you probably will over rely on them, but you better work on your weaknesses because that's what's going to differentiate you. That is such an important insight in the context of a world where we talk a lot about strengths-based development And I think that really is something that differentiates a good leader from an exceptional leader is a good leader, you know, might be doing some of that work on their weaknesses. They might also be really managing their team that way too, Mm -hmm. and overly focused on helping their team (laughs) develop in their weakness areas. I think the best leaders I've worked with are doing what you described. They're really laser focused on building self-awareness around where they need to grow and develop Mm -hmm. to become more well-rounded. Yeah. But then when it comes to like building a high-performing team, they're really focused on like what's each person's superpower and how Mm -hmm. do I build a team where the weaknesses Mm -hmm. don't need to be worked on as much because the team complements each individual's weaknesses. And there's a real important distinction there around Strengths-based development and team formation. But for yourself, if you want to be the best kind of leader, you got to work on your weaknesses. Yeah. Your job isn't like tunnel anymore. The job just gets broader and broader. So the ability to be able to vacillate and toggle between opposite capabilities is 
so important now. I mean, leaders have to be very versatile. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I'm just amazed by leaders. Their jobs are so big and so challenging and it's impressive how well they are doing. I love working with leaders. Well, that's, I love yeah. that positive note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're pretty amazing. Yep. Yep. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Maggie. I really appreciate it. Wow. Thank you, Alexander. This was fun. <laughs> I enjoyed talking with you. Likewise. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Empowered Leadership. If you're passionate about improving your management of the future, I encourage you to pick up a copy of Maggie's book and check out the other resources that she's provided in the show notes. To find out more on how you can improve your leadership, life, and impact with confidence, ease, and joy, please visit my website, opastrategy.com. That's O-P-A strategy.com. And then please make sure to search for Empowered Leadership wherever you get your podcasts and click to subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. And if you enjoyed this one, please do share with a friend or a colleague. It makes a big difference. Thank you so much and have a lovely day.